This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon. My name is Sue Saxon and I look after programming here at the museum. I'd like to welcome you to the Australian Museum and to acknowledge the, the traditional owners of the land on which the museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and those emerging. Now all good things must come to an end, or at least a temporary one, and here we are at the final session of our compelling lunchtime lecture series, Exploring Australians Who've Shaped Our Nation. It's been really fascinating gaining extraordinary insights into a stellar selection of Australians, Ita Buttrose, Lane Beachley, Dr George Miller and Dick Smith, and of course our own Kim McKay who um, took the stage last week. These Australians feature in the 200 Treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery. Today, we welcome an Australian who has helped us get to where we want to go, and in doing so, radically impacted our daily lives and the ways we interact with the world. I'm sure you'll have lots of questions, so please save them up for the end of the session. We'll be also be asking you for feedback, as this is the last in our series of lectures. Would you like to have more? And what would you like to know more about? So please keep that in mind when the email pops into your inbox asking you for some ask you some questions about how you've enjoyed the series. With no further ado, please welcome Kim McKay, our director and CEO, to introduce our final guest in this first sparkling series of lunchtime lectures, Noel Gordon. Thank you so much, Sue, and I should say thank you to you for organising this great series of uh, lectures. It's been fun and um, I'm sitting here today rather than walking up because over the six weeks my hips got worse. <laughs> so I'm limping badly today. But I, I still can talk, which is great. Uh, so welcome all of you to what I know is going to be an amazing uh, discussion with Noel Gordon today. It's sort of ironic that we're in this theatre, probably one of the oldest... Uh, lecture theatres in Sydney, the Hallstrom Theatre, dating uh, from 1860 odd. So uh, it's had a few coats of paint since then, but this very traditional room as we talk about a cutting edge technology. When I was looking at other Australian inventions, and I'm sure you've heard this many times before, Noel, you know, what does Google Maps have in common with these? Well, an Australian invented the notebook. Didn't know that. The surf life-saving reel. I figured that one. Uh, we, of course, made the first feature film, The Kelly Gang. It was 70 minutes long. We invented Vegemite. <laughs> Not surprised. Uh, something else that, you know, worn by a former Prime Minister, we invented Speedos or Budgie Smugglers. Uh, Pedal-powered radio. The Ute. What would Australia be without the Ute, I'd say? Uh, the Hills Hoist, of course. The Black Box for flight recording. Uh, a very important one in this day and age, the Jewel Flush Toilet. Um, I always remember watching the US Today show. I was living in America when the Sydney Olympics were on and Katie Couric, who was the co-host of the Today Show, when she came back from hosting the Olympics here... All she kept talking about is, oh, my God, they've got these two flash buttons on the toilet. 
Um, ultrasound. Did you know that? 1976. The bionic ear. Anti-counterfeit technology for ba banknotes, so plastic banknotes, of course, being sold around the world now. Um, the CSIRO's backing of the Wi-Fi networking technology. And, of course, Google Maps. I mean, there are many others I know which I haven't mentioned, but it's sort of a, a quick-potted history of some of the innovation that's come out of our country. So our guest today, Noel Gordon, is listed in the wonderful Treasures catalogue, which is, if you haven't got one yet, it is in for sale in the shop. He's listed in the section naturally called The Innovators. Uh, he was born in Belgium in New South Wales in 1962 on the north coast and studied eventually at the University of New South Wales where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in Theoretical Physics and Applied Mathematics back in 83 and then a Bachelor of Engineering degree in Electrical Engineering majoring in, in Digital Signal Processing and Digital Communication in 85 which is amazing because the term digital hadn't really entered the lexicon at that time. He worked in software development in, during his undergraduate days for the Royal Australian Navy. I'm glad you're on our side. Uh, the CSIRO and the Overseas Telecommunication Commission. There's an old name uh, as an undergraduate. Post-graduation, he worked in telecommunications and digital networking for, is it JTEC? And Digital Fountain Inc. And, of course, then there was something called the dot-com boom, which we'll talk about, and crash. And in 2003, he and three colleagues founded a digital mapping company, Where Two Technologies, which was subsequently acquired by Google in 2004. In 2005, while working for Google then, they released Google Maps. And he currently still works as a software engineer at Google and uh, no doubt is a great asset still on that team, even though he says he's um, a baby boomer in that group, not one of the young people who works there. Please welcome the esteemed Noel Gordon. Welcome. And take the microphone. And I should also acknowledge that Noel's wife... Uh, Nikki's in, Mickey's in the audience today with us as well. Welcome to you too. There's always a woman behind the man. We know this. We know this. Uh, wow. Well, we know from reading about you, Noel, that um, you started Google Maps in the spare room of your rented apartment, Sydney at the time. But let's pedal back to the beginning because... Through this lecture series, we've been very interested in what motivates people, where those little germs of ideas come from and the motivation comes from. So you grew up in Bellingen, uh, yeah, on the north coast. Well, what was, why were you there? Why did you grow up there? Um, were you working? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, Bellingen, but actually just outside of Bellingen in a place called Gordonville. It's named after my family. We were pioneers in the area in the 1800s. And it's at the foot of the Dorigo Mountains. It's a river-fronted property, 350 acres. Wow. And it was a dairy farm. And so what I remember about it is Dad rustling us out of bed at 4.30 in the morning to go and milk the cows. 
<laughs> and these days I don't, I'm not fond of getting up that early. But, uh, and then we do it all again in the afternoon. And uh, what I remember about that, it was the great sense of freedom and space that we had growing up as kids. It was very... Did you have siblings? Yes, I had a brother and sister there. Uh, it was wonderful growing up there because uh, nobody ever locked the house. Yeah. The house was always open. Um, yeah, just completely different. And uh, I went to school in Bellingen in uh, St Mary's Convent. And I remember that was all so interesting because there was one classroom. And all six grades were being taught in the classroom. The nuns would draw lines down the board and they had grade six, grade five, grade four, grade four. <laughs> and all 20 <laughs> children sat in there and learnt things. And one of the things I remember is when I finished my kindergarten work, I started on the grade one work. Right? And so it was a wonderful experience having all that extra knowledge being presented before yeah, you, me. You could see where you were going to yeah. grade six. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, I knew it was going to be away, yes. And uh, so I just remember that, that I could always get that whatever work we were required to do done and then I was curious enough to go and try and do the next bit of work. It was so really interesting. at what age did you think you might pursue a technology career? Was this in high school? Or? Well, no, it was actually before that. One of the, the most... Um, just hold that a little closer for me. A little bit closer, yeah. sorry. One of the most... Everyone can hear me? Um, one of the, now we're hand, sorry. Um, one of the most poignant moments I remember is in that classroom, uh, all the children sitting around on the desks, huddled around a little black and white TV, watching Neil Armstrong yeah. take the first footsteps on the moon. I, I remember that very clearly and too in primary school. And it completely stopped everything. Yeah. And I remember feeling, I want to be like him. And it was only later in life that I found out that he was a bit more than just a test pilot. He was a professional engineer. So he, so Neil Armstrong was the inspiration? One of them. The other was my dad. He was like Neil Armstrong in lots in of ways. And, and in what sense? Well, as a farmer, you have to be an innovator. Yeah. And he could fix anything with whatever's lying around. He was very scrappy in that, that sense. He could make do with what ever was around him. Um, typically on the farm you'd go out somewhere and you'd forgotten something. And so you may do with what else you found. He'd like if there was a fence post loose, he'd find another fence post that was lying on the ground. He'd pick it up, break it in half and use it like a hammer to put the, put the fence back post in. back together. Yeah, because he might be coming back to that area in the next little while. So I think his ability to innovate and like kids we follow our dads around and yeah. pick up his tools and he says, put that down. Did <laughs> you tinker with him in the shed? Yeah, always. Yeah. Yeah. He I spent a, a lot of time with my dad in the shed too. Yeah. Tinkering. tinkering? Yeah. Yeah. But no, I did. It was really yeah, good it was fun. Great fun. A great learning experience for me, particularly. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't an engineer. He was a farmer, but he was very practical, yeah. and I think that rubbed off on me a little bit. So where did you go to high school? Uh, I went to uh, high school, St Pius the Tenth College in Chatswood is where I did my secondary education, and then I moved on to the University of New South Wales at tertiary level and uh, I started in my first year in mechanical engineering and I did it for about six months and thought it's not quite technical enough. They took us to a TAFE college and we made coal chisels and I thought I'm at a university. Um, this is not quite right. So in the, at the end of the very first year I swapped courses and I moved into electrical engineering and once I got there that's where I found maths and science at a High technology levels, computers were just starting. Um, it was all kind of fascinating and uh, interesting and dynamic and uh, that 
change, of course. Once I hit that, that was me hitting my strides. It was just, I was totally curious. It kept me enmeshed in the work and led to success, I guess. So you've graduated from university and where did you go first? Uh, first of all, after university. It seems like a long time ago now, actually. Just it it is, I hate to tell you. It's it is. <laughs> the passage of time. Um, I started working for a company called JTEC, which happened to be an, an Australian startup. Very unusual. JTEC uh, stands for the four individuals that started that business John, Ted, Ezio, and Charles. And they were working in digital telecommunications. They provided telecommunications equipment, equipment for telephone calling around the country, in, uh, et cetera. And I started working there and they manufactured their own hardware, they made their own software, and it was fabulous as a place to work. I spent 13 years there. Did you really? Yeah. So it wasn't really, it, it might have been a startup when you started, but quite well established. Yes, they, they got very uh, well established. Eventually they were bought out by Ericsson. And uh, I'd left the company by that stage and gone off to do other things. Right. But uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, fascinating there. It was a great company. So that's quite interesting, you know, at your age then, even though you'd done these two degrees in the mid-80s, most young people when they leave university stay for two years at their first job and two years at the second job. So for you to stay for that long period of time, was it just the work? Was it no one else was doing that sort of work? I suppose it was the highest technology work I could get my hands on at the time. Right. Because they were manufacturing their own hardware, um, circuit boards and so on, for, to go into the equipment. And uh, a few companies in Australia were doing that at the time. Yeah. And then couple hardware with software. Uh, to me, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, you know, getting your software working on a piece of hardware and start flashing lead lights and things. And it sounds a bit funny when you think about it, but it actually provided the telecommunications network of Australia. We knew when we were working on it that real people were making telecommunications calls over it all the time, just normal telephone calls, right? So it was uh, practical work and very interesting, a great team there. That's where I met Stephen Maher, actually. Okay. So yesterday I was talking to a man who worked for IBM in the early 60s. He was telling me that the first big IBM computer was in a window across the road from here on William Street. And he was given access to it between midnight and 6 a.m. to do his work because otherwise they were using it for demonstration purposes. And that's where he honed his skills. And yeah. I just thought, isn't that extraordinary? To yes, when I started in computers, everybody was wearing lab coats and had clipboards. Yeah. <laughs> and in, instead of baseball caps, turn yeah, backwards. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, and T-shirts and things. Yeah. Exactly. It has really changed. But I think what I did sense at that time, it was that computer technology was just going to take over. You, was, you had that sense? Oh, I had that, I had that sense strongly. Um, in 1980, through the 80s, just when computing was starting off. And I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed programming. Um, it was solving hard puzzles and doing mm. things that people hadn't done before. And so uh, I just saw it coming. Mum and Dad weren't so sure, I don't think. Dad encouraged me to join the Navy, <laughs> of all things. And I said, no, 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 I'll still go with computing. Uh, one thing I do remember about that time is that the actual decision to go to university. Um, when we made that decision, I had to ask Mum and Dad about it. Are you happy with me going to university? And at that time, university education in Australia was 
free. I also benefited from that. I did benefit from it. And I actually think later on that had, I, had it not been free, I don't think I would have went to university. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how the story would have turned out. But, um, yeah, so I was a beneficiary of the free the education years. movement, yeah. yeah. So, so tell me, so suddenly momentum started growing in this space here and in Silicon everywhere. Valley, yeah. everywhere. It started yeah. taking off. So did you have your eyes on a bigger prize early on? or We'd certainly toyed with the idea around 1990, somewhere around that area. Startups and what they were and what they were doing. And yeah, we were curious, but I don't think we got serious about it until the first web browser appeared. Right. right. That was uh, Mosaic in 1993, at the end of 1993. I think in December 1993, we had um, the first web server going in JTEC. And I think John Ted Nezio Charles thought we were crazy, right? What is this newfangled thing that you've brought in here? But we could see the potential of the web right then. I remember I read every web page on the web <laughs> in a week. And in the next week, I couldn't read all the web pages on the web because they're just grown so quickly in a week. And, whoa, that was just telling me there was something really happening there in technology. And uh, I used it to put up the phone directory on the, of the company. Right, everyone else had little phone books on their, their tables. Yeah. And we thought, no, you just look it up on the computer. You know, it's just there. And uh, so that was uh, inspirational. But we did sense clearly that something was going on. And that this technology was really cool. It was really easy to work with at the time, because, probably because it was so primitive. And uh, no, we just followed our noses on that. This, this is working, see what, we, see what we could do with that. But then the late 1990s began and everything went pretty crazy. So tell me about that first startup you were involved with. Well, I was involved with a company in Fremont in California called Digital Fountain. So you, you moved to Silicon Valley? I didn't move initially. I spent... You went on holiday? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not to Fremont, I don't think. <laughs> it was more industrial area more than anything, but that led to cheap accommodation for technology startups too. And they often happen in areas that have been disused. Um, so anyway, I went to Fremont, California. They were a networking company and they were a startup. What I recall about the place is um, air on chairs everywhere. Every, every engineer had an air on chair. Comfortable chairs. A very comfortable chair. Yes, a very expensive chair yeah. too. And I thought, okay, and they had lunch coming in at You thought I could time. get me a few of those. Yes, <laughs> I, I could. I was just thinking of the cost of them really yeah. at the time. I'm thinking like, well, a $100 chair would do. Do you need to spend 10 times as much on each chair? And I guess that was a sign of the times back then. Um, also, they had lunch every day, which was novel for somebody coming from an Australian company at the time. Um, it was a pretty exciting environment. Uh, there were a lot of companies starting up all over the place. Right? The internet has just... Sorry, the promise of the internet has just been written down. Mm. Finally, the message that we saw in 94 had hit the mainstream. And everybody proposed that the internet was going to disintermediate the way business was done and completely change the world forever. Um, it was termed during that period, it was described as the irrational exuberance, 
right? The new economy was going to change everything and so business was just going to go away. It turned out that that was just a dream. It took something like 20 years longer to do. You know, but everybody was thrilled by it at the time. And people, I was working in telecommunications, it's networking. And the cables that we stretch between computers is the very conduit over which the internet travels. Yeah. Okay, so companies that were doing networking were putting all, they were the, if it was a gold rush, they were the making the spades and the shovels that got everyone going. Mm. So what happened to that company? <laughs> um, I think, I saw, saw a report recently that they eventually got sold to Ericsson. Uh, as, okay. Right, they've been at it for a long time. I don't think I would describe it as a successful startup. Uh, so, but they're still alive. So what was Silicon Valley like? Oh, mania. Yeah. Oh, yes, mania. Right, like I said, the new economy had changed everything. People had suggested that the world was just, that's it, stop having bricks and mortar business, that's going to go away, don't waste your money there. Another thing that happened at, uh, that prompted um, the internet revolution or the, uh, the promise of the early internet was um, there were a number of tax changes in the United States, capital yeah. gains tax change where um, the high tax earners were taxed at 15% if they invested their money uh, for capital gains and they helped fuel, open their pocketbooks and fuel the internet um, by investing because all those bits of cable I mentioned had to be paid for by somebody and so this mania that took over actually provided the internet that we have today. A lot of people lost their shirts in the process but um, it was the fundamental thing that got the entire early internet to, the, to where we are now. But it wasn't entirely successful for you at that time because you did come back to Australia. <laughs> yes I did. I was working in Fremont at 3.30 in the afternoon. On f by 4.30 p.m. I was at San Francisco Airport on an outbound flight to Sydney. What had happened? Um, the tech wreck had really hit and we were instantly out of work. And, uh, well, no jobs going. The whole market for technology jobs went away and we had to come home. All right, so... You've taken a bit of a, you've been on the crest of a wave, you're experiencing this bubble, the internet bubble as it was, <laughs> the dot-com bubble, the burst, and then you find yourself out of work. But you knew, obviously, that you could do something else because you had these skills. So tell me what happened then? Well, what I did was, first of all, take the wrong approach and try and get a job in technology in Australia. Now, Australia was a bit of a backwater at that time, and I did remember looking seriously for something like close on eight months for a job. And at that time, everybody who had a job held on to it very closely. There was no real job security at that time, especially if you were working in technology. Your company could be belly up in a minute. Most companies, internet companies at that time, were surviving on what's called their burn rate. The initial capital they raised, and how quickly they were burning through it, right? because they principally had a business model that was uh, operational loss for long periods of time. Uh, get big, get big fast. And that uh, wasn't a sustainable business model. So many people using it were heading out of business. So we had to decide what to do. And I often think um, being made redundant, I've said before, is the, possibly the best thing that could happen to a person. I wonder if Michelle Guthrie thinks that today. 
I know it sounds odd, and I've often had to think about it a little bit, why I think that way, but from my personal experience was it caused me to refocus and rethink my expectations. Um, say you're a doctor, right, and yeah. there's no jobs going for doctors. What are you going to do, sit around and complain about it? Um, the other way you can go about it is sit down on your couch and, you know, maybe somebody will just come to the front door, knock and give you a job. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. And it didn't happen in my case. I think you need to... You want to play? Get out on the playing field. Right. right. So you actually went to work for your father-in-law's business for a while. Tell us yeah. what you were doing there. Yeah, here I was trained in quantum physics and maths and then I was going to a cutting factory cutting ladies' clothing. <laughs> he, um, he, he goaded me for a while to come and do something. And I, I think um, that changing heart, that reappraisal about what I could do happened during that period, possibly because of his goading. He said, no. You know computers, I bought this new machine, it's cost me a lot of money, come down and teach my people how to use it, make this thing work to, for yeah. me, right? So I went and began working in his little small business and I started at the lowest level one could possibly start. I started by sweeping the floors. It's a good leveller. It was a fantastic leveller, right? I'd never worked in a little small business before. Mm. Not, a, not least of all a family business. And Joe began to teach me and I began to listen and learn about what he had. It was Business Essentials 101, done as a practical course. And, uh, you know, Joe would say he had all these sayings about business. He'd been in business for 20 years or more, right, running his own business and he had a lot of experience. And he used to say, if there's a problem, there's a solution. If there's no solution, there's no problem. <laughs> right? And he, he, the lesson he really taught me was like, let's attend to the problems that our business has today and not worry about the imagined problems that we don't have today. And he taught me about keeping a very keen eye on our costs, you know, and, uh, and to minimise waste everywhere in the business, right? Um, be it time, money or materials, just don't waste things. And when I look back now, that prepared me for what we we're about to do next. I've gained the confidence um, to run my own business and know, know what to focus on, really. It really does help, I think. Um, I remember going into business on my own back in the 80s and I was lucky I learned from a man who had been in business for some time and he taught me about keeping overheads low. <laughs> and you don't need flash surroundings to do your work. And in fact, for you, this is where you met up with Stephen Marr and the Danish-born Rasmussen brothers, Lars and Gents, and the four of you became collaborators working out of your spare bedroom. Yeah. Um, how, do, how did you meet them? How did I meet them? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Stephen and I had worked at JTEC. Oh, okay. 13 years together, right? And then Stephen ran away to the United States. And he got a job at Cisco. And then he got a job at Force 10. And then the tech wreck hit and he had to fly home too. Yeah. Um, I met uh, Lars and Jens at Digital Fountain. So that's... I was the linchpin that knew all three people and brought them together. Um, but they had to... Uh, during the tech wreck, I remember s spending time with Stephen where we were thinking, we want to work in high technology, there's no jobs. What about if we do a startup? Why do we have to go to the United States to do a startup? Why can't we do it here in our own country, in our home? 
And uh, so we'd already thought about it a little bit. Lars and Jens had been thinking about doing something as well because they were both out of work. Uh, most people that worked for Digital Fountain were out of work during the tech wreck. Um, and Lars had contacted me and he said, did I know anyone or would I be interested? And I thought about it a little bit and I thought, I think Stephen would be interesting, interested in coming and listening. Uh, he's an awesome engineer and he can ferret out the, the gold nuggets in amongst the dross pretty well of a new idea. He's very good at that. Um, so I said to Lars, come to Australia. And he said, yes. And so I'd go to work every day in the cutting factory and when we finished at 4.30, we'd leave and I'd meet up with Stephen and Lars in Newtown and we'd sit in a coffee shop and talk technology. And I started to form... God, I wish I was listening to your conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been really boring. Yeah. I don't know. But I think what we were doing that time was just feeling out the ideas of maps and how we felt about it and what we could do with it. And so, more importantly, when and but how. But why maps? Well, it seemed like an area that needed bringing into the 21st century to us. Uh, the world's map data was available, but it was only available at pretty unreasonable terms. It was very expensive to get hold of. Mm -hmm. um, if we thought if we could get hold of just a little bit of it, then we might be able to draw a little bit of it. And we did manage to do that early on. And that's, we did a sort of initial prototype around maps. What first map did you get hold of that you redrew online? Well, we got a little, little bit of Berkeley, California. Oh, okay. Yes, just the suburb on its own. Right. Yeah, um, California was going to cost about $110,000 per month to have the data. It was very expensive at that time, I can tell you. Right? Because the people who had all the digital mapping kept it close at hand because they had to pay money. They actually had to go out and measure the streets and record the, the street names and etc. and it was a very expensive exercise. So understandably you had to pay for it, but we didn't have the wherewithal to pay with it. Um, so we cajoled a company that did have the data to lend us just Berkeley. Is that okay? And they said yes. And we said that's where we started. We started in Berkeley. Wow. So what, so what sort of computers were you using? Ones that we made ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when we... One of the part of deciding was to tell Joe that I'm actually leaving. And he thought we were crazy. You have a good job here, what are you doing? Right, this mm. is madness. And he mm. thought it was mad. And he must have thought we were incredibly mad the day we came with all these computer bits that we bought, the individual parts that make up a computer. And we put it together on the cutting room tables. Um, we built our own computers, right? That saved us money. Maps themselves are a sort of metaphor for society, aren't they? I mean, they've been incredibly important since uh, people first started exploring. Mm. You know, they, they've documented human history, really. They have. In, in a way that nothing else quite has. I had great fun the other day. I went down to Kerry Stokes's building and... He has an incredible map collection. He has a wonderful map collection. And actually. was looking at some of it and I have to, I don't know if, I, I don't think I mentioned this the other day, but I, I was telling you, I collect globes. I'm really interested in early maps and mapping and then of course worked for National Geographic and I was on the floor beneath the cartography floor 
And that chair, of course, were the mapping authority of record in the yes. United States. And in fact, was used as a CIA cover quite a bit <laughs> um, during the wars and, and so forth. But what was it? Were you, I mean, what was it about maps that attracted you? There's something human about maps. Um, I remember rustling around uh, at home with Mum one day. Right? Mum was a, a map collector. Oh, was she? Right, and, and I remember one day she was mucking around like a silly old woman that we used to call her, like in her box of maps. And I said, what have you got there? And she said, I got, that's my maps. And she brought this box out and she had so many. I said, what do you got all those for? And she said, you've got to have good maps, mate. I remember that. <laughs> I remembered it much longer, right? It's so it was really your mother's inspiration. We've oh got yeah, she was a smart and... cookie too, right? Yeah, yeah. Dad, dad in a really natural, practical way, but mum was a registered nurse and trained and she was a smart lady as well, right? But she loved maps. But that didn't appear in my life until some 15 years later yeah. right? from that, that point. Uh, the, the other thing I like, I just think maps are human. Um, the Babylonians were the first to decide in 2300 BC that it might be a good idea to lay out the lay of the land on clay tablets and they used that to navigate their way around the world and so maps have been fundamentally human for a very long time. That's what my interest is anyway. So how long did the four of you work together before you established Where To Technologies? Well, it was probably a couple of months of us just discussing things. And then we had to make the final decision. Are we going to do this? The when, the where and the how. How are we going to do this? And one reason for starting up in my apartment, we were more a bedroom.com than a garage.com, <laughs> was it saved us money. And I remember having to ask Nicoletta at the time, right, we were courting. And I said, I'm going to just bring these three people to the house every day, to my apartment. Are you OK with that? Is, is that going to work? And she said, uh, yes. Uh, OK, I'll back you 110% on this, she said. But I did say she put a rule down. She said, you have to be out of here by 6 o'clock every day. That was smart. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it turned out it um, gave our little team a lot of work-life balance, right? Normally you think of a startup as people working crazy all hours night, and yeah. all this time. Actually, it gave us longevity. It um, allowed us to have rest time and that helped us even be more creative, right? So once the deal was done, the three of us got into our apartment and we'd come nine to five. We were at nine to five.com. So this was uh, a nine to five.com, that's great. This was 2003. Yeah, late yeah. 2003 in the summer of 2003. And it was the, probably the most productive time in software engineering I've ever had in my career. We had a great team, yeah. right, with Lars and Stephen and Jens. Um, just all very brilliant. And then you started talking to Google. Yeah, that was kind of a circuitous way. Once we'd um, got our software to the stage where we thought it was good enough to demonstrate, we split up as a team. Jens went back to Denmark, Lars went to the United States, right, and Stephen and I stayed in Australia. We basically split the team across the world. And we started shopping our technology around in Silicon Valley. And we were getting introductions to venture capitalists. And we ran into one that's called Sequoia Venture Partners. And when you ask who they are, they happen to be the biggest venture capitalist in the world. They're back companies like Facebook, Google, 
Cisco, Intel, you know, household names, and we got an introduction there and started talking to them about our mapping technology and what you do there is you meet one partner, then two together, then three, and eventually you get up to something called a 12-partner meeting where they all decide, and if anywhere along the path, one of them says, no, nah, that's it, doors closed all over, but, but we work very effectively. I'll tell you an example, we used to, they'd give us an idea, and Lars sent a message to Jens, Right, and then Jens had sent a message to Stephen and I, and we'd quickly wrap it on the software, right, and then we sent it to Lars. So at the very next meeting, Lars could go, oh, that idea you had yesterday, oh, we just thought we'd whip that up and just show you what it looks like. Wow. Okay. We were a very efficient team, right, yeah. and, and actually being geographically distributed at that time was to our advantage. Anyway, working with Sequoia, um, this led to an introduction to Larry Page. And then Larry said? <laughs> well, I guess Larry was our customer at that time. We had a, what was a desktop yeah. mapping application, but Google was a web company. And Larry just said to us, I remember, we liked the web in our first meeting. And we went back and thought about that a little minute, and we said, one moment. And within a week, Stephen and I moved the software into a web browser using something called a plugin a little bit of extra software wow. you have to download with your web browser. And so we demonstrated that a week later, and Larry was impressed, but he right-clicked on it and he said, that's a plug-in. And we again said, one moment. <laughs> <laughs> one moment. <laughs> one moment. And meanwhile, Lars and Jens had been working in parallel to move our software onto the web using JavaScript, which is the scripting language of the web. And exactly one league week later, we demonstrated that in front of Larry Page and the engineering team at Google. And that was a pretty fascinating moment. They couldn't believe that you could do this in a web browser. And Larry just opened the door and spoke to Marissa Meyer and he said, Marissa, acquire this company. And it was like that, it just happened that quickly. Were you very excited? I would say. <laughs> yes, beside myself, wouldn't, would not describe the situation. We have come from Australia, which was the backwaters of technology, formed a little team that worked really well together, picked a problem that nobody else was looking at, and they weren't looking at it because it was the tech wreck. Okay? Mm. Nobody was much interested in the web at that time. Great time to do it. And when we showed it in the centre of Silicon Valley, mouths were agape. They didn't believe you could do this in a web browser. And we said, well, actually, you can. I can show you the entire world zooming in and out in a fluid moving in a web browser. And that was the, the game changer. That was the thing that set us aside, set us apart from everybody else. So listening to you, it sounds like you, apart from obviously you're all incredibly savvy and smart, but you were very agile as a team very. to respond and you were listening to the feedback you were getting and taking that on board and coming back as only good salesmen too can is, you know, you listen to what the customer wants. You were delivering but very quickly because yes. of your ability. That series of demonstrations we had to go through with Sequoia, that little learning exercise where we yeah. would implement their ideas very quickly, got us into this mode of doing rapid demonstrations, rapid update to our software. And the effective communication we had as our team 
uh, worked really well. And like you say, listening to your customer, Larry just said, we like the web. And if we had said no, he'd probably wander off somewhere else. And so success in business to me is listening to the customer and addressing their needs. And if you don't, then they'll go elsewhere. Well, there's not a day I'm, that I don't use Google Maps and I'm oh, sure wow. most people oh, well. in the room are like that too, whether it's finding my way around or finding a business which is, you know, nearby that you want to access as well. That amazing, I guess, monetization of the technology. But what's, what are you working on now? I mean, because you are now employed by by Google, as well as being a shareholder, of course. Yes. Because I think you joined at the time when, before, just before Google went public, yeah? Correct. Before yeah. the IPO. Yeah, before the IPO. I love meeting people like you. <laughs> <laughs> right place, right time, yeah. I think, I think our story is the story of being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. I know if the tech wreck didn't happen, maybe the field wouldn't have been clear for us to play in. Um, we also went to the forefront of technology. Nobody believed you could do this in a web browser. I think when Google Maps hit, the whole technology industry stopped and took notice that day. Um, I remember Steve Jobs took notice that day. Mm. The day we launched, we were in building 41, and just after we launched, 10 minutes, there was a phone call for Sergey Brin. And Sergey was with us when we launched, and uh, somebody said, is Steve Jobs on the phone? And Sergey went and talked to him and Steve was a bit apoplectic about why haven't you released this for the Apple browser? <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't at that time because we couldn't get it to work on the Apple browser. Anyway, in the excitement of the moment, Sergey just said, dude, get a better browser and put the phone down. <laughs> and we were standing there in the middle of that saying, right, we're really in the epicentre of technology now that when Steve Jobs is calling Sergey Brin. It was like uh, fabulous, right? Yeah, the web changed right at that moment. Prior to that, no one would touch the web. No one, after the first, everybody losing their shirts in the first round, no one was going to touch it. What we did was changed web development forever, changed the way software was delivered. The age of shrink wrap software had completely come to an end. Yeah. And now, after seeing what we did, people started having all sorts of crazy ideas about what you could do in a web browser. People started making spreadsheets, word processors, every piece of software that was ever well, developed. Not only did you change the, the way the web was used, we all got rid of our Gregory's and UBD street directories. I've still got one. I kept one. Right? Like you collect globes. I, I have a couple street of collections. Directories. I have a street directory from the United States that I caught just because I thought this would be important to just grab one of these. It's probably a museum piece in, in this time. Um, the yellow pages, we knew it. We knew it was going to go. And all those people working in that industry were going to have to retool and do something. But we were part of what's called the geospatial revolution. I think the most extraordinary thing about Google Maps was that we made maps ordinary, everyday, accessible. And it wasn't, it wasn't the insiders who were using it anymore. It was everybody could use maps. And yeah, it changed business. It just, just changed the, world, the way the world did business. So have you made the map to find the moon? Sorry? Have you made the map that finds the moon, the way to the moon? Mm. Yes, we could have. Actually, that's, that reminds me of something. When we, we launched Google Moon, 
Does anyone remember? If you zoomed right in, yeah. you turned it into cheese. <laughs> I remember saying while we were at the epicentre, I mentioned Neil Armstrong before. I remember working at the MAPS team and we got a message from Neil Armstrong in our team, in Google. He sent us a mail the day we launched Google Moon. He was really chuffed. Wow. Um, yeah. Isn't that interesting how those things can come back to you? Now, okay, so here you are at Google, which is a company of principally quite young people. Mm. And um, I remember going to the headquarters to give a talk once. And? It was really interesting because I was met by a man curbside, a young man who I'd been liaising with, who was shoveling his breakfast into his face at the same time as he met me. And I thought, oh, these manners aren't, you know, sort of. <laughs> and we went into the room and I saw my poster up around the campus. And then I sat in this room and all the various staff came in and the first thing they did was open their laptops. And it was the first time I'd spoken to a room full of people with a barrier in front of them. And they were Googling everything I said to make sure it was accurate. It was yeah. the most terrifying yeah. experience. Yeah. I still find that habit of Googlers to be with Googling. their just working, right? What, however yeah. they're working, whether they're Googling or whatever. Um, that still doesn't quite sit with me well. Um, it was also bring your dog to work day too. Oh, I yes. There were dogs. It was the craziest experience. Yeah, it, it, it is pretty crazy. I remember when we had pyjama day. Yeah. Everybody came to work in their pyjamas. And it was really a lovely, relaxing day. <laughs> it really was, right? Um, Google is uh, just a fabulous place to work. That's so, why I continue. So, what are you there. working on now? So, I'm working on the um, I'm working on web browser, Chrome. Chrome came about because of Google Maps. Yeah. JavaScript had to be faster. Web browsers had to be better. And Google, four years later, released Google Chrome. It's a great little browser. And I'm also working on something called Chrome OS, which is a new operating system we're developing. So what's the future? Like, what, what are your insights into what we're all going to experience? We read about and we see stories about driverless cars and cars that fly, Jetsons, other <laughs> Jetsons, which is my inspiration as a child. So what's I'm coming sure, down the pike? I, I'm pretty sure coming down the pike, driverless, driverless cars are a thing. Yeah. Right? And I do actually think they will change society. Um, it's a fascinating area to, dis to explore from a technological point of view, and I think we can make it work. Um, further down the track, I think the biggest fundamental change I'm seeing in technology has only just started in the last five years. This is what people would call machine learning or artificial intelligence. And the number of results that we're getting in this area in the last few years are absolutely outstanding. The technology wave that is coming from Artificial intelligence is going to be like no other. Uh, currently, we look at the growth of things on the internet and everything has to be hockey stick, upward and to the right. Well, the number of papers being published, technical papers in technical journals about inf uh, sorry, artificial intelligence is also going through this hockey stick curve right at the moment. Um, a breakthrough was found five years ago and its applications are just getting everywhere. And I think... For example, medicine is one area where image recognition, automatic image recognition, is going to play an increasingly important role as a diagnostic tool in a clinical situation. 
Um, Google is currently has doctors and engineers working on something called retinopathy. This is where you take the photograph of someone's iris and that's just an image and we run it through a computer and the computer will spot out any anomalies in your retina and say you might want to point this out to your clinician to uh, it's something we might need to look at. So I think um, the applications of AI are just going to appear everywhere. So what are the dangers that you perceive in this? <laughs> well, the dangers of putting humans out of business, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen so quick. I think these technological changes, I mentioned before when the internet was all full of promise, it actually took some 20 years for that technology to make its way. And I think all technologies, like Google Maps wasn't an instant success or anything, right? Everybody came and used the technology and looked at their street in particular and where they were, but then they all went away. And that's natural with all new technologies. Mm. Right? People, you're asking people to change the way they work, but they're not going to change their work. They come and have a look and then they go away. Right? It's not until the technology is accepted and becomes vital, necessary. Well, I, I, I guess putting it you know, on the device in the palm of your hand, making it so accessible. I remember Time magazine doing a story about the iPhone when it landed. And there was a little quote in there that said, um, the iPhone, the fact that it has Google Maps is worth the price alone. That was the first time you had, that was the first time you had really high quality moving maps on a mobile phone. And that's exactly where we wanted to get to, wow. right? And uh, yes, the iPhone changed everything, having that little powerful supercomputer in your pocket. And I think phones are only gonna get more powerful and probably be the principal way people, you know, deal with the networks and computers that society is building. Well, Noel, I'm sure that some of our audience have questions for you. I, I've kept talking because it's been so interesting listening to Noel. Um, so if you don't mind, if we could take a few questions from our audience okay. today. I know they would like to know it. Yes, sir. Um, technically, is there a difference between Google Map and Apple Maps? <laughs> Sorry, is there a difference? Between, sorry, between Google Maps and, oh, Apple Maps. No, I think this, the, the, the fundamental technical thing there is Maps is really hard. Maps is way harder than you think. You can't just waltz into this area and think you know how to do it really quickly. We have, um, I think, something like maybe more than a thousand engineers still working on Google Maps still pushing the technology in all these directions. Mapping is a really hard problem. And we discovered it, and other people have discovered it too. Thanks, Noel. It's fascinating. I spent my career working for IBM, so, and artificial intelligence was just coming on. The, the, but one of the things I'd be interested in is, you know, Google Maps are fairly static in terms of the way you interface with them. How far away are we having real-time maps? Oh, that's not far away, actually. Maybe in the next 10 years. I, I imagine a time when we can see the world in real time right? and present it to you instantly on Google Maps. Yeah, that's coming. So I'll behave. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a bit more of a comment than a question. Um, well, we all know that men don't like to ask for directions, so I want to thank you because it's cool to use Google Maps. And my husband has a terrible sense of direction, and I think you've saved my marriage. So thank you. 
You're not the first person to ever tell me that. <laughs> the directions thing has all been sorted out. We can just push it off somewhere else now, right? I often go to places and I get, um, one of the things that humbles me most is when I'm out and about, like recently, Nicoletta and I went to Europe on sabbatical for a while. And everywhere we look, people are using Google Maps and it's kind of like, yeah, look, they're using it and they're using it. And it's, it really shows me how it's moved into society as a general thing now that people rely on. Uh, the other thing that happens is I often get scrummed by soccer mumps who say, oh, God, you've saved me getting to the park on Saturday or Sunday. <laughs> you know, and I, 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 just, I just get that we made something that everybody can use and easily, and I, I'm really happy about that. Oh, thanks. It was a great talk. Oh, thank um, you. Oh, it was amazing. But I've always wondered, how does Google Maps work out congestion on roads. You know, they'll say, this is the best route, because there's less congestion. I can never work that out. How, how does it know that? Okay, so you share your location with Google. Okay, so you share your location with Google. Right, it's quite a privacy, privacy sensitive thing, right? So you opt in to share it. But if lots of you do, we can see where you cluster on the roads. It's really simple. <laughs> it doesn't look simple, I mean, but yes, once, once location is like really key to what you're doing and what other people are doing around you, say we want to fly, fly drones over the city, for example, we have to work out where people are so we don't fly drones above them, okay, for example, because there might be a crowd. Yeah. So clustering is the answer. Actually, I, hi, I have the uh, same question but the opposite scenario. I was once uh, driving through the mountains in Costa Rica and there was no clustering. It was just, I saw the map on paper, but when I actually got to the area, it was a forest. There was no road. There was like mud that went everywhere. But Google Maps directed me on how to go through literally a river yes. and get through where I had to go to. Yes. So how did that work technically okay. when there's no other car? So you may have noticed on Google Maps a couple of options like avoid tolls, avoid swamps, <laughs> and so on. Yes, the world's mapping data is quite huge. And at the time we started, only the United States and England had really accurate data. And progressively, the world has jumped on the bandwagon and we've got really accurate data. Um, strange things happen in the world when we're trying to, say, give you directions. Uh, how do you get to a particular street number in Japan? Well, the first thing you find out about Japanese streets is the street numbers are non-consecutive. Seems weird, but that's what they do. It's based on the date. Um, in India, there aren't any street signs. Everybody navigates by landmarks, landmarks, like go down to the big temple, turn past the elephant and go into that place. And that's how they do it there. And so we've had, adapt, had to adapt Google Maps to that particular, uh, sorry, in India, just to make directions work there. Yeah, sometimes we don't have all the data, but there's a bug link on the bottom with a little bit of feedback. You could say, hey, you drove me into a swamp here, and we could do something about that, right? Um, now we allow people to update Google Maps itself. It's a little bit scary. Do we trust you all to do it properly and not drive everybody into swamps? But again, we can use clustering, right? Just, it's like the way Google works out how to spell correctly. Google doesn't know how to spell correctly. That's fact number one. But Many of you tend to spend it to, to correct a word and spell it this way if we offer you two options. You'll, most people go this way. Some people go this way, and that might depend on their locality. 
how they spell a particular word. So do people go right or left? Well, we don't care which way you go, <laughs> but what we will do is dynamically build a model of probability to say where are you likely to go based on your locality and a few other things. So I can and tell you something about museums. In, when people walk into a museum room, 70% people go to the left. I'd, I'd go left. It's really interesting. In fact, it's different the opposite way in the Northern Hemisphere. Turned around? Yeah, I would expect that. Yeah. It's quite, quite interesting. Another mm. question down here. Um, I just wanted to say that I remember the day my brother bought a TomTom Tom Navigator for his car, <laughs> and I just thought it was the biggest waste of money because I knew you were coming to my phone. And it wasn't long. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, in-car navigators sort of came and went yeah. really quickly. Um, what's going to happen next in your car? Uh, I think Android is coming to your car now. That means Google Maps is going to be built in to every car and those problems that you had it will just completely different. We'll just be listening to that, provided the data is right. So long as you get the voice right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in Australia, you get an Australian voice. Yeah. Yes, we do localise the voices, right? Uh, if you're using Google Home now, we have an Australian voice. And, uh, yeah, localisation is a, an important big issue. Big thing. In, yeah. It's, it was always a big thing in television. I remember when we first launched Google Maps, there was a lot of discussion on, on the internet. And I remember one of these persons, I don't know if it was Reddit or somebody else, said, Google should not be allowed to do this. You should release the entire world in one go. And we were like, how many hours in a day are there? We've got a, bit, we've got a lot of work to do, right? But it was, it was interesting seeing people's opinions about what we should, should have done and shouldn't have done. Indeed. Another question just here. Uh, Noel, notwithstanding the rate of change in the world that we're seeing, yes. um, schools don't seem to have moved along very much. So I brought my teenager today because I wanted him to hear your story about, well, for me, which is a fantastic story of adaptability. Yes. Uh, and in, sure, he has a laptop that he takes to school, but really schools are still, are still predominantly teaching kids uh, information so that they can spit it back out in <coughs> exams. You know, how are we going to teach our kids to be more adaptable? Because, you know, sadly, I also grew up on a farm and attempted to tinker in the shed, but of course I was a girl, so um, I wasn't welcome there. Uh, but there's not, there's not a lot of that sort of learning in, uh, for, for most kids these days. How, how, what, how do you think we can mm. do this? Because at the moment they're not really being groomed for the kind of workplaces that we now have. I think in life that um, if people aren't curious about something or passionate about it, that thing, they should probably go and find something they are passionate about. So I think all we can do with children is put the range of human endeavour in front of them, of all the things that they could possibly be interested over the period of their education, which is long, and hopefully our passion within them will come to the fore. Somebody likes to paint, somebody likes to do mathematics, somebody likes to do X. It's not important. I think what is important is finding that thing within them that really, if you gave them that task to do, they'd sit in the corner and quietly do that for hours. I think if you find that, you're on a winner. 
right? Uh, inspiring passion is the uh, most important thing. My parents didn't inspire me in, in the sense of like, oh, here's all the great things you can do. They just let me follow my passions and if I was interested in a thing, allowed me to do it, right? But they weren't um, overly protective. They weren't uh, wrapping me up in cotton wool so I wouldn't hurt myself or if I fell over or made a mistake. I've failed a number of times in my life in business and these were great learning experiences for me as any time we fall over. People often ask me, what do you like to see in children? And I say, I like to see them fall over and they go, God, that's mean. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. Have you ever noticed how they get up smiling and get on with it? I wish adults were more like them. So I think uh, with the technological change you mentioned, um, that's happening at an increasing rate. And lifelong learning appears to be the necessity for society to adapt uh, to this continuous changing in the goalposts. It's moving very rapidly. I don't think legislature can catch up as quickly and I don't think it should. It should be in place later, but it should come later. Some technologies come and then they go. Uh, we don't really need to worry about those. But the technologies that stay and become part of our everyday lives, we need to think about a bit more in terms of privacy and various other things. Um, the world I see coming before me is one of a massive technological change continuously. Work is just going to change irrevocably from what we remembered before, that you would get your job in 40 years and get a pocket watch, gold pocket watch, and that was it, and you could retire. I don't think it's going to be like that anymore. I think I've had, let me count them, 10 different jobs. Well, that's quite a, um, a good thought on which to close today, Noel. I think the impact that you've made not just in Australia but around the world is uh, quite phenomenal. And I, I just want to ask you one last question as we close this series. What, because you've, you've mentioned a few things that have been common amongst all of our um, guests in the Treasures series. The need for curiosity, all, everyone's had that and, and they've all been passionate about what they do. And, I don't think you can do anything if you're not passionate about it anyway. It's a waste of time. But um, what would you like, you know, thinking a few decades down the track now, what would you like your legacy to be? That's a very hard question, which I've thought about a little bit, because I had to, because I didn't know what I was going to say to you initially. Yeah. <laughs> but when I thought about it a little bit more, I think fide et labore. In faith and good work, you can make great difference to the world. And uh, I think that's the thing that might define me. Faith and good work. Good on you. Please thank Noel Gordon. This has been an Australian Museum podcast. 